Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so happy that you're here with me today. This past week or two, I have received some of the nicest messages from you all. I also got some great recommendations for new episodes. I just want to let all of you know that y'all are the best, and I'm so glad that I get to be a part of your weekly routine. I don't know about all of you, but after four weeks of Janine Jones, I needed something with a happier ending. So today we are going to talk about the 50-year-old cold case of Pecos Jane Doe, better known by locals as Pecos Jane, and how her case was finally solved. Pecos, Texas is way out in West Texas. It's one of the last stops in Texas before you cross the Texas-New Mexico border. As of 2021, its population was a little over 12,000 residents, and their population rises and falls with the oil booms that come and go in Texas. But Pecos's claim to fame is really its cantaloupe and that it is the home of the world's first rodeo. On July 5th, 1966, a couple calling themselves Mr. and Mrs. Russell Batuan checked into the Roper's Motel. The husband was slim with a blonde crew cut. He looked like he was in his 20s and about 10 years older than his wife. The wife was young and pretty. She had long, dark hair, olive skin, and full pouty lips. The 15-year-old girl, Sandy Moore, who checked them in, thought that the wife looked glamorous and somewhat Mediterranean. Sandy Moore's grandparents managed the Roper's Motel, and she was staying with her grandparents that summer. Sandy waited tables in the cafe attached to the motel, cleaned rooms, and helped check in guests. The husband filled out the standard registration card that listed his name, address, and phone number, along with the make, model, and license plate number of the car. Later on that afternoon, the couple was seen hanging out around by the swimming pool. The husband was drinking a beer and the wife was drinking a soda and wearing a one-piece red swimsuit. She was very striking. Neither of them were swimming. They both were sitting in lounge chairs. The motel was busy. There was a steady stream of people checking in between oil field workers and truck drivers who stayed there on a regular basis when they came through town. A little while later, a maid ran into the lobby. She was very upset and couldn't get the words out. She drugged Sandy out from behind the front desk to the pool. Lying in the bottom of the pool, face down, at the deep end, was the wife in her red bathing suit. Without thinking, 15-year-old Sandy Moore dove into the swimming pool and tried unsuccessfully to pull the young woman out of the pool. A motel guest heard all the commotion and ran over and jumped in and helped Sandy get the lady out of the pool and up onto the side. Sandy began CPR and an ambulance was called. The first thing I thought when I read this, besides the fact, oh my gosh, what happened to this woman, was how impressive is Sandy Moore? She's 15 without thinking she jumps into the deep end of the pool, tries to rescue the lady, and then immediately begins CPR. Y'all, I'm 45 and I don't know if I would be that clear-headed in an emergency like that. That's impressive for a 15-year-old. Anyway, Another motel guest went to the couple's room. The husband had been taking a nap and they woke him up to tell him that his wife was being taken to the hospital because they had found her unconscious on the bottom of the pool. By the time he got to the pool, the ambulance was gone with his wife inside. They told him they were taking Mrs. Batuan to Reeves County Memorial Hospital. 
Mr. Batwan asked Sandy Moore for his registration card. He said that he would need it to identify himself to the police. Mr. Batwan got in a dark colored sedan and drove away. Everyone at the motel assumed he was headed to the hospital to check on his wife, but he never showed up and no one ever saw him again. Now, at 73 years old, Sandy Moore regrets giving him that registration card. She said she feels guilty because the police might have been able to figure out who the man was and track him down. But in all the excitement and commotion, she didn't think about why it would be odd for the man to ask for the identification card. Looking back now, she says surely he had a driver's license or some other form of ID. She said she thinks about it often. Why did he want that registration card? Mrs. Badawan was pronounced dead at the hospital. Since her husband, Russell, never showed up, the sheriff put a bolo, or be on the lookout, out for the missing man. But since the registration card had all of his information on it, they didn't have much to go on. The man and his car were pretty average. They didn't stand out very much. Police went back to Roper's motel and searched the room, hoping they could find some more information on the couple. But the whole room had been cleared out except for a woman's blouse, one bra, and a pair of shorts. Everything else was gone. It was obvious whoever Russell Batchwan was, he did not want the police to find him. The police put out a search for Russell Batchwan, but the only Russell Batwan they were able to locate was an active duty Marine stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and he was still there. So he obviously was not the right Russell. It looked as if the couple had given the motel fake names. Pecos, Texas was too small for its own medical examiner, so the woman's body was sent to the pathologist in Odessa, Texas. The woman had a red abrasion about the size of a quarter on her upper left cheekbone that looked fresh but the pathologist couldn't determine if it happened right before her death or if it was from being pulled out of the pool. The woman had no other wounds on her body. There was one odd thing that the pathologist found. On the bottom of her right foot, someone had used a ballpoint pen to write the name Joe, J-O-E, and then next to it, in all capital letters, the word LEAN, L-E-A-N. No one was sure what that meant, but her death was ruled accidental. Now, even though the man behaved very suspiciously, he had done nothing illegal except for running off without paying his motel bill. Now, of course, morally, his behavior was reprehensible. An actual loving husband would never run off and leave his possibly dying wife. So the man didn't look good no matter what was going on. And it makes you wonder, was he just a sorry person or had he actually hurt this woman on purpose? Had he want, did he want to kill her or was it a terrible accident and he didn't want to face the music? After her autopsy, the woman was brought back to Pecos funeral home where she was embalmed and kept in a back visitation room for several weeks. The police had put ads in all the major newspapers across the United States hoping that her family would see it and come to claim her. Now, people did come from all over. Some families came as far away, came from as far away as Kentucky and Illinois, hoping the young woman was their daughter, but no one was able to identify her. That was one thing that the funeral director said was that it was really sad to know that there were that many families 
missing daughters. The parents of the other missing children that had come to see the young woman were so moved by the unidentified young lady that they established a drowned girl trust fund to pay for her funeral expenses. The residents of Pecos also helped her out. They treated the young woman as one of their own. They didn't want her to be placed in an unmarked pauper's grave. So the funeral director donated a nice wooden casket. A local dress shop gave a pretty blue and white polka dotted dress for her to be buried in. And other members of the community helped pay for a headstone that read, Unknown Girl Drowned. Since the people of Pecos did not know her religion, they wanted to be respectful, so they held a funeral service conducted by a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister together. Fifty townspeople attended the service, and three sheriff's deputies and three police officers served as her pallbearers. The minister said, This girl is not known to us here, but most certainly she is known to God. If there is someone somewhere who cares for this girl, may they know she is now surrounded in love by those who care. They buried the young woman in Fairview Cemetery across the street from Pecos High School. Every time Sandy Moore comes to town to visit her family, she still brings flowers to place at the woman's grave. Other residents also left flowers for her so that she was always remembered. Decades passed and the young woman's identity remained a mystery. The town began calling her Pecos Jane Doe, which eventually was shortened to Pecos Jane. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Finally, in 2014, Todd Matthews, the founder of the Doe Network, received a strange email. The email was from a Hotmail account that was registered in the Netherlands. It said, There is an unidentified girl buried in the Fairfield Cemetery in Pecos, Texas. She isn't on the Doe Network or NamUs or anywhere, and I was wondering if she could be added. It was signed, JCJ and she had linked several news articles to the drowning at Roper's Motel. Matthews added all the information into NamUs. Todd Matthews established the Doe Network in 1999 to help find missing and unidentified victims' families. Until then, there was no kind of database for people to look for missing or unidentified victims of crime. It was just sort of like a search for a needle in a haystack. Well... Todd Matthews was inspired to create this network because his father-in-law told him about how he found a body of a woman wrapped up in a piece of canvas on the side of the road. No one knew who the woman was, and he worked a long time to get her identified because he hated the fact that this poor woman was just wrapped in canvas and left on the side of the road. So Matthews, inspired by this story, decided to set up the Doe Network so that there was a place for families to look for their missing loved ones. In 2007, 
the Justice Department created the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs. Besides being the founder of the Doe Network, Todd Matthews was NamUs's Director of Communications and Outreach at the time he received the email from the Netherlands. This gave a much broader outreach between the two entities to help identify victims and to possibly help identify Pecos Jane. No one matched Pecos Jane's description in NamUs and nothing happened for two more years. Todd Matthews couldn't let it go though. So he asked Mike Nance, the NamUs regional director in charge of all Texas cases to take a closer look. Usually NamUs doesn't work that way Names have to be added by law enforcement, but Matthews pushed for movement in the case and Mike Nance did him a favor. Mike Nance began looking at things in 2019. He noticed that Pecos Jane's death certificate said approximate age 19. Witnesses guessed that she was between the ages of 18 and 20. That meant it was possible that she could have been a juvenile. Was it possible that even though the people saw her, did she just look older than her age? Could she have been an underage kid? Mike Nance began to wonder this, and he thought maybe they'd been looking at the wrong database. So he turned to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Pecos Police Chief Lisa Tarango received a phone call from a senior forensic case manager from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They asked her if she would be willing to reopen Pecos Jane's case. Chief Tarango agreed. She said that as a mother herself, all she kept thinking about was how it would feel to have a missing child and not know anything about where they were or what happened to them. So Tarango started out doing her own research. She then assigned the case to Corporal Felix Salcedo. They couldn't find the original case file or the autopsy report. They figured it had been lost over the years, and that meant they were going to have to start from scratch on a 50-year-old cold case. Tarango, though, took it as a challenge, and she was determined to find Pecos Jane's family. Corporal Saucedo started with news stories from 1966. He visited the West of the Pecos Museum to look at their archives that they kept on microfilm. The museum's director, Dorinda Millen, knew all about the case. She had grown up right around the corner from the Roper's Motel, and when she came across new news articles about Pecos Jane, she became fascinated with the story and started looking into it herself. So she was able to help quite a bit, and she gave law enforcement copies of every article that she had ever found on the case and shared everything that she could find. She was hoping that they would finally find some answers about Pecos Jane's true identity. I think that's one of the coolest things was that all the residents in Pecos, Texas really took this young lady in. They knew that no one knew her real identity. No one knew where her family was, but they didn't want to just leave her alone. And they never gave up on her. For all these years, someone was always looking. Someone was always interested, whether it was law enforcement or just residents of the town. And also, they were always remembering her, leaving flowers at her grave. In fact, at one point, someone had even lined it with, the you know, the little solar lights you stick in your yard along the sidewalk? Someone had put solar lights around it 
just so she was always remembered. And I think that's really sweet and just shows what a thoughtful town Pecos is. Next up on the, on Corporal Salcedo's list was the Pecos funeral home. Now, Pablo Carrasco was only 19 years old when they brought Pecos Jane in. He had just started working at the funeral home, but he remembered that day very well. He was about to retire, but he was still there at the time, and Carrasco took them out to the garage where they kept all the files. He gave them the file on Pecos Jane. In the file was a copy of her death certificate, burial expenses inventory, about a dozen letters from other families looking for their lost daughters, and six color Polaroid pictures of Pecos Jane on the embalming table. A forensic artist from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children used the photos to create a reconstruction of Pecos Jane's face and posted it on their website and social media accounts. Okay, I have to stop again for a minute. Sorry. But I wanted to ask y'all, when you look at those recreated photos, do you think they look like the victim? I don't ever think they do. And I always wonder if I would be able to identify anyone, even if I did know them. But I digress. I'm off the subject. Anyway, back to our story. This didn't lead to any new leads. So they decided a DNA sample would be their best bet. But that meant exhuming Pecos Jane's body. The Pecos police contacted Mark Ingram, a forensic anthropologist at the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification, to do the exhumation and properly prepare Pecos Jane for testing. On the morning of August 27, 2019, Ingram, Salcedo, Tarango, and Crosco met at the Fairview Cemetery to begin the exhumation. The remains of Pecos Jane were cleaned, put into a body bag, sealed into a box, and sent for DNA testing. When the remains arrived at the University of North Texas, forensic lab in 1999, it was determined that she was a white female between the ages of 15 and 18. They submitted her DNA to the FBI's combined DNA index system, but there were no matches. The FBI's combined DNA index system is another national database of genetic profiles submitted by law enforcement agencies, but they hit another dead end. That was until Othram reached out and offered to help. In May of 2020, Othram case manager Michael Vogan came across Pecos Jane in the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's database, and he wanted to assist. The Othram lab performs DNA analysis for law enforcement agencies across the country, as well as for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Michael Vogan told Chief Tarango the only way that the case could be solved was by forensic genetic genealogy. Still, things move slowly. Almost a full year later, a molar from Pecos Jane arrived at Othram Laboratory in the Woodlands, Texas. Othram used the DNA from Pecos Jane's molar to find a match for her through genetic genealogy. Genetic genealogy can determine how closely two people are related. This meant tests like 23andMe that, he, that people had been using to find out about their ethnic backgrounds or possible risks for certain medical conditions could now use these big databases for other purposes like finding lost relatives. You know, a lot of people now use these databases to look for adoptive parents, for biological parents, or missing people, and they've even helped law enforcement solve very long cold cases. 
Pegas Jane's DNA profile turned up as a best match for three siblings living in Texas. It looked like the siblings were the great-grandchildren of one of Pecos Jane's first cousins. Starting with the three siblings, innovative forensic investigators, a company that's basically like private investigators for genealogists, used the family tree and traced it back and found a family from Kansas that had 15 children. Ten of those siblings were still alive. Several of those siblings had Facebook accounts and one of the siblings had been posting about a missing sister that they had been looking for for years. A few weeks later, a cold case detective from St. Petersburg, Florida Police Department showed up on 74-year-old Joyce Hemi's doorstep. The detective told her that he was there on the behalf of the Pecos, Texas Police Department. Did she by any chance have a missing sister? Tears began to stream down Joyce Hemi's face. Finally, after all these years of searching, they were going to get some answers about their sister. Pecos Jane's family had never stopped looking for her. Her real name was Jolaine Hemi. Jolaine and her 14 siblings grew up on a 160-acre farm in Salina, Kansas. I hope I'm saying that right. I could not find a pronunciation online, so it's either Salina or possibly Selena. If any of you guys know, let me know. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. The ninth of the 15 children, Jolaine had gone missing after she moved to Kansas City in 1966. She had moved to Kansas City to be closer to two of her older sisters, Joyce and Carolyn, who already lived there. She split her time staying between the two sisters' houses. Jolaine was working as a waitress and was saving her money because she wanted to buy a house, a car, and she wanted to go to school. At, one, at some point, she wanted to be a secretary. Jolaine met a man about 10 years older than her at work. None of her siblings could remember his name, but Joyce met him a few times, and he matches the description of the man at the motel. Jolaine was 17 at the time, so that put the man around 27 years old. Joyce remembered that she did not like the man. She didn't like the way he treated her sister, and Joyce let her sister know her opinions about him but Jolaine said she liked him and she said he probably wasn't very nice because she didn't do what he wanted all the time so it sounds like Jolaine had some spunk which I like on Friday July 1st 1966 Jolaine asked Joyce if she wanted to go to a movie with her and her boyfriend Joyce said no she and her boyfriend already have plans to go fishing Jolaine never came home that night and she didn't come home the night after the sisters looked everywhere for her and reported her missing to the police. The police unfortunately did what so many police departments did at the time. They told the Hemi sisters that the couple had probably gone off somewhere and that they would be back, so it wasn't taken seriously. But the sisters did not give up because this was not like Jolaine and they knew she wouldn't just leave and not tell anybody what was going on. They started putting up missing posters, signs of Jolaine up everywhere and asking questions of anyone, asking if they'd seen Jolaine, asking if anyone knew where she was headed or who she was with. The more questions they asked, they found out that Jolaine's boyfriend had also never returned to work and that he was missing. Jolaine also never came by work to pick up his paycheck. A few days later, Joyce received a postcard from Las Vegas that read, Joyce, well, I got lost. See you in a couple weeks, maybe. Joe, 
this letter, this postcard worried Joyce because the writing first did not look like her sister's at all. And Jolaine never went by the name Joe. Their mother also received a similar letter and she got so mad that she tore it up into little tiny pieces and threw it in the trash can because she knew it was not from Jolaine. The whole family was very suspicious. But those were the only clues to Jolaine's whereabouts between July 1st and when she finally arrived in Pecos at the Roper's Motel on July 5th. Chief Durango believes the boyfriend wrote and sent the letters, but no one is sure why. Did he always intend to kill Jolaine? Did he just not want the family to find her? Were they intending to run away and start a new life? No one really knows. Police even speculated that maybe the couple ran off and eloped in Vegas, but they couldn't find any records to confirm this either. They also can't figure out why or how the couple wound up in Pecos. It's not really along the route between Kansas and Vegas. It would kind of be out of the way. So no one's really sure why they stopped there either. Jolene's siblings believe that whoever the man was, he killed her. You see, Jolene couldn't swim and she never went in the water because she was not able to swim and she was kind of scared of the water. So why was she even in that pool at all, especially in the deep end? They were also puzzled about the writing on her foot. What did Jolene mean? That wasn't how she didn't pronounce her name Jolene. She was Jolene. Plus, like I said earlier, it was written as two words. Joe, J-O-E, like a man's name, and then Lean, L-E-A-N, all in caps. The family had never seen any of the ads in the newspapers, but they had never given up on finding her. Their, other, their mother asked questions about Jolaine until the day she died in 2000. And one of the last things their father said when he passed away at the age of 101 was, I just wonder what happened to her. I've always wondered. So that's the other thing. The Hemis were a close, tight-knit family. It wasn't like Jolaine was some girl with no roots and she just took off. They were close. They stayed in touch. She wasn't someone without people. Chief Tarango and Corporal Salcedo flew to Kansas to meet with the family. Fifteen family members were there in person and others joined in by Zoom. Durango and Salcedo told the family what had happened to Jolaine and how the people of Pecos had taken care of her all these years. The family was grateful and glad to know that she had been cared for. That was something that they always worried about. Where was she? Was she safe? If she wasn't alive, was she just left somewhere? Or had someone at least taken care of her body? So some of their fears were able to be laid to rest. The man with jo who was with Jolaine at the Roper's Motel remains unidentified. If he's still alive, he would be in his 80s now. But no, no more has been heard about him, and there's been no more interaction from the email account from the Netherlands. That's also so weird. The Netherlands? Who was this? I mean, the Netherlands are thousands of miles away from Pecos, Texas. Could it be from that man who has a guilty conscience or someone who knew him? So weird. And gives, and I have so many more questions about that. But when investigators tried to send an email back to the account to ask some questions, they received a message back that the account was no longer active. 
it's almost as if the account was created just to send that first message to get the ball rolling and then shut down. The Ropers Motel is still in operation today. Now, the Hemi family planned to go to Pecos and meet other townspeople in person. I couldn't find anything to say if they made it to Pecos to meet the people who had helped their sister. But they made arrangements to have Jolene cremated and her ashes were returned to Kansas so that she could be buried next to her parents. The Hemi family is grateful for how the town of Pegas took care of their sister for all these years. It's been a comfort to them knowing that someone was caring for her when they could not. Thank you for listening today. I'm glad that you were here. Please remember to subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you like what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a friend. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod, on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love more ideas on new episodes or also your thoughts or theories on Pecos Jane. Do you think the man intended to kill her? Do you think that it was an accident, but he was a coward and he ran off? What are your thoughts? Who emailed from the Netherlands? I'd like to hear your theories too. So let me know and I'll see you next week. Bye.